believers are to be doers of the perfect law of liberty. Previously, James addressed three areas of the law where we as believers are weak. In controlling our tongues, in caring for the helpless, and in constraining ourselves against worldliness. The remainder of James' epistle focuses on those three areas. Beginning here in chapter 2, James expands on the issue of caring for the helpless. In particular, he devotes his epistle to the injustice of partiality. The injustice of partiality. Some of these early believers were discriminating against the helpless instead of caring for them. And sadly, many Christians today are just as guilty of showing partiality or discriminating against those whom God has deemed helpless. We're going to begin in James chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. We're going to begin in verse 1 with the statute against partiality. As we consider the injustice of partiality, let's begin with verse 1, the statute against partiality. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Notice that James again addresses his readers as my brethren. By referring to his readers as his brethren, Adelphos, James identifies both himself and his readers as part of the same fellowship or community of love. He is about to admonish them and wants them to know that he is writing to them out of familial love. He begins by introducing a fundamental statute. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The statute is a condemnation of personal favoritism. The term personal favoritism, prosopolympsia, means showing partiality. It describes the propensity to favor an individual or a group while discriminating against all others. At the heart of such discrimination is prejudice. The Greek term prosopolempsia translates the Hebrew idiom nasapanim, meaning to lift up the face. Nasapanim is a judicial expression that denotes unjust preferential treatment or to make judgments based upon externals. Believers are not to judge people based on external factors such as skin color, dress, or physical appearance. Now the statute condemning partiality comes from God's law as recorded in Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial, nasapanim, to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. However, Long before God ever codified this injunction against partiality, against discrimination in writing, he had given it orally and passed it down to man, as demonstrated in Job 32.21. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. The psalmist says in Psalm 33.5 that God loves righteousness and justice. And because God loves righteousness, he condemns partiality. 2 Chronicles 19.7 
Now let then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality, nazapanim, or the taking of a bribe. Because he loves justice, God executes justice for orphans, widows, and immigrants. Deuteronomy 10.18 He executes justice for the orphans, the widows, shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Hence, God is fair and impartial in all of his dealings. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. Nazapanim, nor takes a bribe. Acts 10.34 Peter said, God is not one to show partiality, prosopalympsia. God shows no partiality between anyone regardless of wealth, ethnicity, or reputation. Job 34, 19. God shows no partiality, nazapanim, to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. Romans 2, 10 to 11, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality, prosopolempsia, with God. Galatians 2, 6, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, prosopolempsia. And 1 Peter 1, 17, if you address as father the one who impartially, aprosolempsia, Judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And as such, God's righteous dealings with humanity are to be the standard for human justice. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God expects believers to be Pursuing justice. Does that describe you? Are you a person, a believer, who pursues justice, just as God? Now James qualifies his admonition to be just and not show partiality. He states, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. The verb hold, akete, means to possess or practice something as a matter of habit. And the object of the verb hold is your faith. Now the term faith in Greek is articular. It's the faith, tapiste. And that definite article is in the attributive position providing definiteness to this noun faith. That is, James is referring to the body of biblical doctrine called orthodoxy. And notably, he references the doctrines or teachings of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is the typical New Testament designation for the second person of the Godhead. That he is Lord, Kyrios, emphasizes his deity. The name Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, or Iesus in Greek, was given to the incarnate Son and emphasizes his humanity. He is God in the flesh. And that Jesus is the Christ, Christos, means that he is the Messiah or the Anointed One who redeems. Hence, Jesus is both God and Redeemer. As well, James states that the Lord Jesus Christ is glorious. Like faith, the term glorious, doxa, is also articular. The glorious. Hey, doxa. 
In other words, it's not just any glory or honor that's ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a particular glory, nameless the Shekinah glory or the visible manifestation of God's presence. At his incarnation, Jesus became flesh and was the visible manifestation of God on earth. John 1.14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. 2 Peter 1.17 For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. James' use of glorious underscores his belief that his half-brother was indeed God in the flesh, the visible manifestation of God. Again, James qualified his admonition to be just and not show partiality. He qualified the admonition by stating that believers cannot possess the doctrine of Christ or the teachings of Christ and discriminate against others. You see, at the heart of Christ's teaching is his command to love one another. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now we need to note that the command to love in itself is not new. Leviticus 19.18 commands, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. The new aspect of Jesus' command was the qualification, As I have loved you. Previously, we were to love others as we love ourselves. Now, we are to love others in the same way that Jesus loves them. Do you love others the way Jesus loves them? So James is saying here that it is impossible to love one another and at the same time be unjust and show partiality. Interestingly, the command to love one's neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 is the summation of Leviticus 19.9-18, which commands us to show justice and not impartiality to the helpless. That includes the needy, i.e. orphans and widows, strangers, i.e. immigrants, the poor and the deaf and blind, i.e. the disabled. In light of Leviticus 19, how many of you are guilty of partiality or discrimination? How often have you failed to meet the needs of an orphan, of a widow, of an immigrant, the poor, or the disabled? How often did you just simply not care? Now, having established God's statute against partiality, James now explains the sin of partiality, the sin of partiality in verses 2 to 7. Verses 2 to 7 of James. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, You sit in a, here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Specifically, James deals with the issue of partiality or discrimination amongst believers. Now note there the phrase, into your assembly. 
Assembly translates the Greek term synagogue or synagogue. Now, the synagogue originated during the Babylonian exile as a place where the Jews gathered for the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. The early church, being uniquely Jewish in its origin, continued meeting in the synagogue. The role of the synagogue in the structure and organization of the church cannot be ignored. Church historian Philip Schaft states that the New Testament church rests historically on the Jewish church, so Christian worship and the congregational organization rest on that of the synagogue and cannot be well understood without it. The lack of information in the New Testament, for example, on how to organize and structure a church implies that the organizational structure of the Old Testament synagogue was transposed onto the church. And besides the traditional layout of the sanctuary, the biblical offices of elders, bishops, deacons, and deaconesses all transferred from the synagogue. Now in James 5.14, James uses the church. Is anyone sick among you? He must call for the elders of the church. Now the term church, ecclesia, is a called out assembly or congregation and was used amongst the Greeks to describe a group of citizens gathered to discuss the affairs of the state. Now the term was used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew term kahal, which means congregation or assembly. Modern students of scripture must understand that it is not an issue of synagogue versus church. The synagogue describes the place of worship, whereas the church describes the people who gather together for worship. And that still could be said today. This is a synagogue. This is a place of preaching and teaching the word of God. The people are the church. You're the church. Not the building. The building, we can say, is a place of preaching and teaching. It's a synagogue. But the church is the people who gather to worship. Now, returning to the text of James 2, 2 2-7, James illustrates that partiality had come into the place of worship by depicting two types of church visitors, one rich and the other poor. And he says that the believers were guilty of honoring the rich and dishonoring the poor. By showing partiality between the rich and the poor, these believers were in direct violation of the perfect law of liberty. They were not caring for the helpless. So the wealthy man arrives at the synagogue decked out with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. Now the term gold ring, crusodactylos, is used only here in the New Testament. It literally means gold-fingered. It means that his fingers are loaded with gold rings. During the first century AD, gold rings were typically worn by the Roman equestrian class. The phrase fine clothes, lampros ethes, refers to gorgeous sparkling white garments. The poor man arrives to the synagogue in dirty clothes. The term poor, patokas, is a person who is destitute and poverty-stricken. He is without a doubt a person in need of help and care. The degree of his poverty is known by his dirty clothes. The term dirty, ruparas, refers to that which is soiled and shabby. James is likely referring to a homeless person. And so these two men come into the place of worship. One's decked out in fine jewelry and dressed in clean, fine clothes. The other arrives in worn-out, dirty clothes and is homeless. And the reaction to these two different people is an indictment against believers. When the wealthy or powerful arrive, people, the believers, pay special attention to them. That verb, pay special attention, epiblepo, 
means to respect and show kindness and favor towards someone. Impressed by the individual's jewelry and dress, the believers invite him to have a seat in the good place or in the best seats. And when the poor arrive, they're told to stand over there or sit down by my footstool. That phrase, stand over here, means to stand in an inconspicuous place. This person is basically pushed to the side, out of the way, so to not draw attention away from others. Sit down by my footstool means have a seat on the floor. See, the homeless man, the poor man, the helpless man is viewed so wretchedly that he's not good enough to even sit on the small bench used for resting one's feet. Instead, he's relegated to sit on the floor. And with this example, James indicts those who discriminates against the helpless on two counts. First, if this is you, you have made distinctions. That word distinction, diacrino, means to separate people and create divisions. You have discriminated against the helpless and as such created divisions or factions in the church, something clearly objectionable to God. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Second, they've become judges with evil motives. See, you appoint yourself a judge. And your motives or thoughts are evil. Paneros. That is, morally wrong. See, when you judge the helpless based on a faulty standard, such as their skin color, their dress, their physical ability or appearance, then you are morally wrong. Furthermore, by showing partiality or discriminating, you have dishonored the poor or the helpless. That verb dishonored, atemazo, means that you have shamed them and treated them with indignity. And by shaming the helpless or treating them with indignity, you violate God's law. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. In James 2.5, James again addresses his readers as my beloved brethren. He's dealing with some difficult issues and he wants to remind them and us that we're part of his family and he's admonishing us out of love. What he's about to tell us is so important that he commands us to listen. That verb listen, akua, was in the imperative tense and means to hear with intention. James wants us to hear and heed his next statement. Again, we're to be hearers and doers of the perfect law of liberty. James provides three reasons not to discriminate against the poor and ultimately all those deemed helpless. He states that they are chosen by God, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom. These three reasons demonstrate why discrimination is morally evil. And this is the seventh triad of James' epistle. First, they are chosen by God. Now, God's choice to save the poor or the helpless is evidence of his regard for them. The question, did not God choose the poor of this world, does not imply that God only saves the helpless. It does mean, however, that the helpless are more apt to be saved than the wealthy. You see, power and privilege often prevent the wealthy from seeing their sin problem in need of a Savior. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 Consider your calling, brethren. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So the poor are chosen by God. Second, the poor are rich in faith. That phrase, rich in faith, refers to the blessings of salvation. Though poor and needy in this present world, because they have been redeemed, they will enjoy the blessing of God's kingdom. God's saving work redeems them from sin and will one day reverse the afflictions of this present world. Third, the poor are not only chosen by God and rich in faith, they are heirs of the kingdom. James Point alludes to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God has given the title deed to his kingdom to the poor and helpless of this world whom he has redeemed. Their inheritance of his kingdom is secure because God promised it. The inheritance of the kingdom will occur when Jesus returns to reign. Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed in my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Further, God has promised his kingdom to those who love him. This statement was made back in James 1, verse 12, concerning the crown of life. Those who love him are those who obey his commands. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. While there are many commands from the Lord, one command that is specific to James 2, 1 to 13 is the command to love one another by caring for the needs of the helpless. Genuine believers will obey this command. Jesus states that failure to love one another and care for the needs of the helpless implies that individual is not genuinely saved. Matthew 25, 41 to 46. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he'll answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How about it, believer? Is that you? Are you genuine? Is your religion true, or is it worthless? James concludes his explanation on the sin of partiality by providing three facts about the rich. These facts demonstrate why we should not be quick to show favor towards them. We must be careful not to equate wealth with God's blessing. Nowhere in Scripture is wealth a sign of God's approval, yet somehow we have in our minds that we see affluent believers or we see affluent churches, oh, God must be blessing them. They've got a big building. God must be blessing them. They've got lots of money in the bank. God must be blessing them. Wealth is no indication of God's approval. Indeed, James reveals that the rich oppress the helpless, exploit the helpless, and blaspheme the name of Jesus. And this is the eighth triad in James' epistle. First, he says, the rich oppress the helpless. Now, the verb oppress, kata dinastuo, means to treat harshly. The only other time this verb is used in the New Testament refers to Satan's rule. 
You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed, katodonistio, by the devil. For God was with him, Acts 10.38. In the Septuagint, the verb is also used to describe the harsh treatment of the helpless. The prophets condemned the oppression of the helpless. Amos 4, 1 and 2. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks. Ezekiel 22, 7 and 13. They have treated the father and mothers lightly with you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and widow they have wronged. Behold, then I smite my hand at your dishonest gain which you have acquired and at the bloodshed which is among you. The rich oppress the helpless. Second, the rich exploit the helpless. James says they drag them into court. The verb drag, helco, indicates the rich forcibly take them to the courts. They use their power and privilege to influence the court to secure favorable verdicts at the expense of the poor. Too often those who envy the powerful and privileged are the very ones exploited by them. And third, not only do they oppress and exploit the helpless, but they blaspheme the name of Jesus. That verb blaspheme, blasphemio, means to slander or attack the reputation of someone. What they slander or attack is the fair name of Jesus Christ. The term fair, kalos, denotes something honorable or beautiful. And that name, anoma, is a uniquely Jewish reference for God. Acts 5.41 They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Third John verse 7 For they went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. And James clarifies that it is this name by which believers have been called to salvation. And that name is Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Acts 4.10 and 12 Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Bearing the name of Christ, believers became known as Christians. Now the solution to partiality is found in obeying God's law. Let's look at James 2. 8 to 13, the solution to partiality. James 2, 8 to 13. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the solution to partiality, to the sin of partiality, to the injustice of partiality, is found in obeying God's law. Notice in James 2.8, he refers to the perfect law as the royal law. The term royal, vasculas, means kingly. In other words, it's the law of the king. And being the king's law, it is final and authoritative. James defines the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Specifically, the royal law is found in Leviticus 19.18. It was this law which Jesus the King declared to be second only to loving God. Mark 12.28-31 What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. James says that if we are fulfilling the royal law, we are doing well. Now the verb fulfilling, teleo, means putting something into practice in order to accomplish a goal. The goal is to be just and impartial. If you practice the law, the royal law, this law, and obey it, you would become just and impartial. Paul affirms that loving one's neighbor is the fulfillment or the practice of the law. Romans 13, 8-10 Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians five thirteen to 14 For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, James affirms here, That if you show partiality or discrimination against the helpless, you are committing sin. God's moral standard, the law, demands justice for the helpless, for the orphans, for the widows, for the immigrants, for the poor, for the disabled. Failure to do what God demands is sin. Because you are sinning, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressors, parabates, are those who deliberately violate God's law. In other words, if you're ignoring or oppressing the helpless, you are knowingly choosing to violate God's commands. And in turn, God's law convicts you and declares you guilty in God's sight. Is that you? Are you discriminating against an orphan or a widow, an immigrant, a poor person, someone that's disabled? If so, you're guilty in God's sight. Now Paul addressed this issue in Romans 2.12. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. My friends, you have the word of truth implanted in your heart. You possess the perfect law of liberty. So when you sin, the law becomes your judge. By showing partiality or discriminating against orphans, widows, immigrants, poor, or disabled, you have violated King Jesus' law. And you're going to be judged by that law. Now, if you think that breaking or violating just one law isn't that big of a deal, James states that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The term keeps means to obey. Now there are 613 commands in Scripture. You can obey 612 of those laws and become guilty of violating them all by breaking just one. Because all laws are God-given, 
and therefore equally express God's will, violating one law is the same as violating them all. Now in James 2.11, he puts forth the sixth and seventh commandments. Do not commit adultery and do not commit murder. Both adultery and murder are violations of the royal law to love one's neighbor. He states that if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. His point is that if you commit murder but do not commit adultery, you're still guilty of violating the whole law in God's sight. It's as if you committed adultery. Violating one law makes you guilty of violating them all. Now the vast majority of us as believers would view adultery and murder as heinous sins. Nevertheless, many of you have no issue ignoring the needs of orphans or widows or immigrants, poor or disabled, the helpless. You have no issue even discriminating against them. And God says that if you oppress or discriminate against the helpless, you are guilty of that sin and the sin of murder and the sin of adultery and all the other sins. And so I ask you this question. By that standard, how many of you are guilty of murder and adultery via your partiality against the helpless? And so James issued two imperatives in verse 12. So speak and so act. The command so speak and so act refers to one's word and works. One's word and works should be just and show no partiality. Believers' words and works will be judged. Now that verb be judged is in the future tense. This judgment is future and it's going to occur at the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 You see, the standard, my friends, by which Christ will judge our words and works is the law of liberty. We will be judged according to how we obeyed God's law and that should motivate us to obey it. Again, by obeying the law, we would not be guilty of the sin of partiality. How's your judgment coming? In James' final analysis, he states, the law will render mercy or judgment according to the mercy or judgment that one has shown to the helpless. Now in this case, mercy, Ilias, is the outpouring of compassion to those in need. To those who show no mercy or compassion, they will receive no mercy or compassion, only condemnation at the judgment seat. And so, believer, I challenge you to consider when you're tempted to ignore or worse, oppress the helpless. Consider this. If you give no compassion, you'll receive no compassion. Only condemnation. James states finally that mercy triumphs over judgment. The verb triumphs, katakakamai, means to exalt over something. James' point is that God does not want to pass judgment. Instead, he desires to show mercy. Nonetheless, each person will be recompensed according to their words and works. I challenge a believer to forsake the injustice of partiality 
because it contradicts God's heart for the helpless and it violates the law of love. When you put your needs above or ignore the needs of orphans, widows, immigrants, poor, or disabled, you're guilty of partiality and discrimination. And I'm telling you, your partiality or your discrimination is often motivated by selfishness. You want to put your wants and your desires before the needs and wants of others. You hate to be inconvenienced by the helpless. If that's you, confess and forsake your selfishness. And friends, if you're passing judgment against the helpless based on hearsay or opinions, you are perverting justice. Matthew 26, 11, Jesus said, For you will always have the poor with you. How many times have I heard this scripture twisted to mean that the helpless are hopeless and should only be helped when convenient, which isn't too often? You know what Jesus was actually saying here? We should always be ministering to the needs of the helpless. How about you? Father God in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for giving us this text today. For showing us what the injustice of partiality is. It is sin. It, it, it is a violation of your law of love. It is a violation of your own character. Father, forgive us when we discriminate, when we show partiality against the helpless. Father, help us to examine ourselves. And Father, if there's selfishness driving us, then Father, may we confess it and forsake it. If it's ignorance in us, then let us confess and forsake that. If it's evil motives or thoughts, let us confess that. Whatever it may be, Lord, so that we may honor and glorify you. So that we may be people who do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before you. Then help us to confess and forsake the sin of partiality. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.